0: This bonus episode of our Southern Futures podcast comes from a conversation with historians Dr. Melinda Maynor-Lowry with UNC and Dr. Blair Kelly at NC State University. I'm your host, Melody Hunter-Pillion. So we asked how these professors of history reimagine the future of the South with their work. I also wanted to know how parents of all races might approach discussions about racism. But when I began asking about the talk, at least what I thought was the talk that all African-American parents have with their children, I could see Dr. Kelly on her Zoom screen shaking her head, and I knew I was about to learn something I had not considered from these two historians. For people who are not of color, how can they talk to their children about race? I think it's, uh, for us, just natural um, when we are people of color to some of us, not all of us, um,
1: I want to push back on that, yeah, Melody. Please do, because I, really I
0: always thought everybody had that conversation in, a, in an African event. It's,
1: it's not easy. And I think, you know, I, the thing that has been hardest for me is I'm raising children who are incredibly confident and proud of who they are and comfortable in their skin. And then I need to tell them that their ancestors were held in bondage and then they were segregated again and people hated them for no apparent reason until, oh, I don't know, their grandparents were adults. And now it's kind of okay, but sometimes not. And you might get killed for being who you are. Like exactly how is that something that would come natural? Um, And I have not known how to do that work. Um, As a historian, I have not known how to disappoint and break my children to conform to this world, and I, so I, you know, I've tried different things and done different things, but I don't, I don't n- have some naturalized way of of doing that that work um, with my family.
0: So it's like That's the right. the myth of the talk. Then that I was yeah. thinking, oh, it's just everybody has that talk, but not so much, and it's a hard talk, as you're saying.
1: When do when do you tell your child that Martin Luther King, who we celebrate, was not just passing away from old age, but was had his head blown off because of who he was. We've made him a hero. And then we have to then, you know, my daughter didn't know for years that he was assassinated because they don't even mention that in school. It's just sort of like he was there and then he was gone in the wind. And so how, how do you disappoint your children? How do you break your children to this?
2: And tell them that all that pride they have in themselves in certain situations is not going to do them a bit of good. If they happen to run up on the wrong person at the wrong time, this this pride, this culture, this sense of self that we've instilled with them will not help them against someone with racial prejudice who is determined to commit violence against them.
1: And seeing, you know, the, the loops of, of Black death on television, um, you know, I've tried, I have a seven-year-old son and I've tried really hard to keep him from seeing a snuff film. Um, of a, a man that looks like his father from the place where his father is. My, my husband's from Fayetteville. Um, George Floyd is three years younger than was three years younger than my husband. So, how do I, how do I share that? Why are the people on the TV protesting, mommy? Like, what are they fighting about? What is that fire? What is that the dust he calls it? And when he sees the tear gas, and so I don't, I don't know. How to tell him about that because he is very prideful and, and you now you know, he loves being black though he he's funny evidently um, he goes to a school that's like kind of exquisite in its um, racial composition like so there is a significant population of black and Latino and Asian and white students and there's even a few Native students and East Indian students and just international students and so it's like a lovely little microcosm he can never just be. Anything. Although you see the, the you know, as we moved to um, a digital platform uh, for a few weeks, he's like, well, where did all the black students go, mommy? And so, um, you know, those, those divides are there. But um, so evidently he told a, a, a little white boy in line um, that he should go first because black people had been treated unfairly. And so now we should rectify that by letting him go first in line. And um, uh, <laughs> and so um, <laughs> a, a, a white mother heard her child repeat that story and went and told the uh, aftercare team about it. And the uh, aftercare woman, um, who is an African-American woman, was like, and? Is it
0: wrong? But do you're both historians, and as historians, and I'm thinking, wow, they have all the tools to grapple with this. If it's even really difficult for historians to grapple with, what, how do parents in general uh, talk to children about this?
2: Well, so I, you know, I also want to push back against the idea that there's a talk to have. I mean, I think this is an ongoing exposure and i don't dict- i don't want to dictate what other parents need to do with their children i know what i do with my child is of course she was born into this conflict because of who we are as indigenous people and the the earliest signals that she got in life were from community and family and love not you know of people that are deeply connected to her through through history right and so Again, we as Lumbee people are fortunate, we feel fortunate to be Lumbee. We feel fortunate because we know where our ancestors are. We know where they're buried, they're with us at all times. And so she being kind of born into that understanding culturally means that through, uh, through exposure to difference, which is inevitable, even if we lived in the Lumbee community, it would be inevitable to be exposed to difference. Exposure to difference is filtered through this understanding of who she is. So then we can bring we can have a con, an ongoing conversation about fairness, about to, Well, we don't even talk about tolerance. We talk about judgment and lack of judgment, and we talk about when we're judging other people. What do we What are we judging them on? Are we judging them on their behavior? Are we judging them on? you know, assumptions that we make about them? Are we judging them on the language that they speak or their accent? Are are we judging them on the way they dress? And then how does she feel judged? So being able to kind of open ears, you know, listen without my own, without imposing all the time my own understanding of the world on her is a kind of constant conversation we have. We got good at surviving impoverishment. But the question now for Lydia, I think for my daughter, is how will she cope with the enormous amount of resources and the privileges that she has of an education, you know, the privileges that she has of a stable home environment, the things that a lot of her ancestors never possessed. And so for for me, the challenge is talking about cultural differences, talking about prejudice, behavior versus appearance, always putting yourself in someone else's shoes before you leap to a conclusion. These are just fundamental, you know, human behavior. It's not necessarily a big, intense talk about race we're having, but also she hears me on a regular basis having conversations with coworkers, especially now that we've been at sheltering in place, you know, having constant conversations with, people across the country about these issues. And so sometimes she'll sort of pipe up afterwards and be like, what was that about? Like, well, factually, you know, here's what it was about. What do you think of that?
1: When um, people who identify as white are teaching their children about who uh, other people are, I think they should endeavor not to frame it as, boy, they wish they were white or something's actually wrong with them. And uh, I, I, I was looking for it, and I failed to find it. Um, evidently, Kennedy gave a speech about like, like who would want to be the Negro in, in, in the 1960s. I can't remember the title of it. And I, I had never, I, as a historian, there's all kinds of stuff I don't know. So just disclaimer. Um, I had not heard of that speech, and um, two colleagues of mine were discussing it. And they were like, yes, yes, yes. And I'm like, I want to be the Negro. Like, I want to be the Negro yesterday, today, tomorrow. And I I mentioned it to some of my students, and one of my students was like, what about in the 1960s? Would you want to have been the Negro then? And I was like, when my mother was graduating from Howard? Yeah, heck yeah. Like, (laughs) and so I think this sense of um, deficiency um, that... um, that implicitly speaks to a supremacy, right? Is part of what we have to push back against. That um, that there is some superiority that we are seeking um, in the identities of others. That's not that's not me, and I, I wish people would not, you know, teach their children. Because I, I've I've had to unteach my students that it's you know um, it's fine to say if someone is black. Like, it's fine to say if someone is a, like, they're like, oh, uh, a woman came by your office and she was looking for you. And I was like, well, what'd she look like? And they're like, uh, she had on a purple sweater. And I'm like, (laughs) really? (laughs) What else about her? So, like, you know, this whole colorblind notion that somehow it's more respectful to not notice my black skin or someone else's. Is, it's ridiculous and, and, and there's nothing wrong with me. So I wish people would stop you know, saying we don't see color and, and teaching those kinds of lessons. Yes, you do and, and so what do you do with that information? just as Melinda was saying, you know how do you move through those interactions without bringing a load of assumptions about what those colors might be?
0: We're gonna wrap up the show and I wanna ask you both if you have some final thoughts that you'd like to leave us with about building, building the future and moving forward, but using history as a guide.
1: I still want to be a historian. I do not want to be a, you know, a person who, who writes fiction, although I, I love fiction. Um, I still want to, to plumb the depths of, of our real lived experiences and recreate those and remake those, but I wanna do it in a way that is compelling. To a broader audience because I think our stories are powerful and I think they are telling about who we are as Americans not just southerners but as Americans Um, and so to do that work um, requires a different way of writing and thinking and and so I'm reading writers that inspire me to to, to think uh, in that way and Melinda is one of those writers uh, you know you open her new book um, to those first few pages and you're drawn into a narrative of people and place um, that is not just strictly, you know, here are the facts, and, and here's how history um, unfolded strictly through time. You are drawn to a, a, a narrative that is grounded in that history, but um, lovely um, and compelling to anybody who might open the page. And so that work, that kind of uh, retelling, that, that, that self-reflectiveness um, Um, the drawing on our own ancestors in ways that we were trained not to do, right? We were trained to strictly avoid thinking about our own families. Um, So I am thinking about my family and I'm thinking about those stories that are passed down and I'm using them because they are a form of knowledge um, and a form of of telling. And so I'm also blending our present moment into uh, what will be historical work.
2: And your appearances Blair on CNN and NPR and news outlets all over the country really serve to concisely explain these issues with a deep level of accuracy that's factually based and therefore a lot more powerful than the repetition of myths and platitudes that typically come across with more standard interpretations of the past. And so you know, I think we need more and more of that about our region. When I say our region, I guess I mean the South, but I really think of the South as a, as a region of sub You know, you are able to help readers and viewers and listeners better understand the moment that we're in by using this technology, which our ancestors were not, that was not available to them. And um, also using the language of co- the contemporary moment to help people immediately reframe and rethink something that they thought they understood. And I think our, the reason why we still teach as historians, even though we both have administrative roles, I mean, we still teach because we practice that work with our students and our students teach us ways to communicate that are more effective. And my children, my child teaches me you know, ways to communicate that are more effective. And so when I talk to her about race and racial inequality, and I talk to her, of course, because we're Lumbee Indians, I talk to her specifically from that lens. And that's a place-based lens, right? It's about ancestry and heritage, but it's mostly about family and where do you come from,
0: Historians Dr. Blair Kelly with NC State University and Dr. Melinda Maynor-Lowry at UNC Chapel Hill. For resources on understanding racism and its history as well as impact, visit southernfutures.unc.edu. This podcast is powered by the Southern Futures Initiative, a new collaboration between the College of Arts and Sciences, UNC Libraries, the Center for the Study of the American South, and other units of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. For executive producer Dr. Melinda Maynor Lowry, Sound Editor Mark Meyer, and Associate Producer Ellie Little, I'm your host, Melody Hunter Pillion, at the Center for the Study of the American South. Join us again next time. Southern Futures. Reimagine the American South.